Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Okay. Here we're starting over. Oh, God. Uh, that's going on the <laughs> retirement reel. Uh, Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 23rd, 2017. <laughs> The Deploy, Detain, Deport Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We just had an aborted start, which uh, someday those records will be released um, from the John Dickerson archives and the world will be shocked. Um, or maybe the David Plotz archives. I don't know. It was all. John was just an innocent, John was innocent, innocent by, collateral damage. An innocent bystander. <laughs> That's John Dickerson of Face the Nation with me in DC. Hello, John. Hello, David. And that voice, of course, was Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Have you cleared the image out of your head? We've all yes. cleared. We all cleared a terrible image. I'm out moving of on. All right. On this week's GabFest, Donald Trump's planned immigration enforcement policies, how different are they from President Obama's? How extreme are they? Are they legal? Then the Trump administration revokes the Obama administration's protections. It's in schools for trans kids. That was a seemed like a gratuitous shot, but we'll talk about it. Then the ritual execution of Milo Yiannopoulos after a videotape surfaces of his revolting comments appearing to endorse pederasty. Why was this the the hateful thing that got him uh, banished from polite society? Plus, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, what is your Mar-a-Lago? What is our Mar-a-Lago? Is it okay to have a place where you vanish and, and disappear to all the time? And what would yours be? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hey, two announcements. Next Wednesday, we're doing our first live show in Los Angeles. There are a few tickets left. It's at the Ace Hotel, the theater at the Ace Hotel. It's going to be great. Slate.com slash live to get tickets for it. We've just been plotting it. It's going to be very fun. Um, It's going to be a great big crowd, and we would love to see you there. So slate.com slash live for tickets to that. And also... On Wednesday, May 10th, our DC show for the 100 days of the Trump presidency at the Warner Theater, slate.com slash live for tickets for that on Wednesday, May 10th. And there are still tickets available for that show. It's also going to be, will be fascinating. And uh, I hope not too dark, not too dark. There was huge immigration news this week as the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kelly revealed Initial plans for carrying out President Trump's order to tighten immigration enforcement. Key elements of the orders that Kelly has issued include broadening criteria for deportation to include basically any criminal activity by an immigrant would make somebody vulnerable to it, even extremely minor offenses. Also allowing summary deportation for people who have been in the country for up to two years, which is a significant expansion of of a smaller program the Obama administration had tripling the number of ICE enforcement officers to about 15,000, building 
immigration prisons near the border to detain and hold people who have been swept up in, in this tighter enforcement, prosecuting parents who bring children illegally into the country uh, from overseas. The administration considered but apparently backed off of an idea to deputize 100,000 National Guard troops to carry out uh, these arresting and enforcing provisions. Um, Emily, the Trump administration got nailed last month for a very haphazard and probably illegal order about refugees. Do the proposals that Kelly issued look as slapdash and as legally troubled so far? No, they don't. Uh, I would say that the Justice Department under Jeff Sessions had a hand in this and the Department of Homeland Security, which is where the, the orders came from. And I mean, this is really a huge shift. It, it really can't be understated. So there's sort of two ways to think about this. One is what the federal government has just called for and allowed for. And then the second is what it actually has the resources right this minute to put into play. So in the first category, I mean, essentially, the administration has declared everybody who is in the country without documentation a priority for deportation. Then, you know, the Department of Homeland Security kind of backed off and said, no, we're still going after people who commit serious crimes. But it's very confused and the doors are wide open for treating anyone in this manner. And then there's this idea of deputizing local police all over the country because ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, doesn't have the manpower to do anything like what this order calls for. So that's going to be one thing to watch really carefully is what local police do, especially in big cities that don't want to cooperate with this order. And then there's another big question of legal process. So, you know, people who are in the country illegally don't have a huge amount of legal rights, but they are due some process. And one of the big procedural changes the Trump administration just made was to hugely expand the number of people who are eligible for what's called expedited removal. So that means that you can be deported with much less process. And the Bush and Obama and Clinton administrations used this in a very limited manner. You had to be... Um, right at the border and you could you had to have gotten to the country very recently. Obama expanded it to 14 days. Now this kind of expedited removal can be used against anyone anywhere in the interior of the country and it's if, if you've been into the country up for two years you're eligible for it. So that's a huge shift too. This is really dramatic. John as a political matter does anything that the Trump administration proposes alarm Republicans either in Congress or the or the greater Republican electorate? Yeah, it depends how it's all carried out. One question, Emily, is when you said it was w when it declared everybody a priority at the beginning, that was the interpretation of it. But I didn't see any language that says if your only crime is being in America illegally, go after them. Well, I guess I would say two things. I know what you mean. So first of all, what I meant was there's they took away the idea that there's anyone who is because they're part of a group is has any kind of protection from deportation. So the notion that like there's any class of people who are not a priority is gone. And then the other thing, and this doesn't contradict what you said, but it is also sweeping, is that the people who are priorities include anyone suspected 
suspected of any kind of infraction and anyone whom any law enforcement officer deems a threat to public safety. So right. there's a huge amount of discretion here. Right. So in effect, I would say if, if yeah. I w- I mean, I understand why undocumented people right now feel like they are not safe. Right. It's just one's it's different. One is, you know, thou shalt go forth and grab anybody. And the other is leaving it up to discretion and and how it's applied. So yes, um but but there are these but, there are these incidents. I understand. But that's where that's where I'm trying to go. So we, we politically remember also that the president has said that anybody who is in the United States Ill, uh, illegally has nothing to worry about, shouldn't be worried, he told David Muir in, uh, I think, his first interview as president. So he said, you don't have to worry. Then during his press conference, he said anybody who is still in the country as a result of the president's deferred action, DACA, or a dreamer would be treated with heart. So then the question is, is there anything in any of these orders that backs up that rhetoric? There isn't. Right. So what happens is as they enforce the orders, which are broad, they can be enforced in any fashion they want. And so there have been some people pulled in who are dreamers. And then the question is, who in the administration or in the processing of all of this is really going to care? Because once they're in custody, um, you know, they'll just process them and that'll be that. I mean, and and I guess the, the question is whether these become raids or the, the immigrants who are in the United States illegally are picked up through the regular law enforcement process. So they've been suspected of something, and then they're in they're you know going through processing for the crime or suspected crime, I should say, and then that triggers ICE, and then they're into this stream. Or will uh, uh, federal officials and local officials start going to say churches and just going through and checking people's papers? That's that's what hasn't happened yet. Um, if it becomes the latter, you can imagine it being more of a um, political problem. The other one other thing I would just say is this idea of having local law enforcement do it is not just uh, a problem for those that are sanctuary cities or or and that definition is tricky. But there's also just a huge resources issue when you have other crime to fight and you're now and you now have this huge load that is apparently now on you as a result of this new uh, these new sets of orders. And also people are afraid to come forward and report crime because they could be targeted. That's the sanctuary city piece. That's what, you know, in sanctuary cities, they say is the reason you you want to have some leeway because you want to have people be able to come and report. I find this an extremely difficult question for me to grapple with. And, And because because the fact is that we have laws on the books that are designed to prevent people from coming to this country illegally and designed to uh, disadvantage people who are here illegally and and to discourage them from being here and to deport them if they're here illegally, to, that, that they don't have the right to live here, that they're, we have normal legal processes that allow people who are playing, playing by the rules to get here according to laws that Congress has passed. And, and so, it, of course, we cannot have a system where anybody who's here illegally gets the right to stay under any circumstances. That's a recipe for trouble. And well, certainly that's Congress borders, cer- which is yeah, not the law. Yeah. And certainly Congress, that's not what Congress and the president have, have done. What is so, to me, so troubling about what Trump is doing, and it's of a piece with so much else that he's doing, is that, the, that it imposes uncertainty on people, that people need a certain amount of order and regularity and trust to be able to live their lives. And you, you, of course, ideally you say, well, we don't have as many people living here illegally and we privilege legal immigrants and things like that. But once you create the system where 
where you don't know if you're if you're an illegal immigrant what you can and can't do you become much less valuable your life is much worse society around you is much worse because you no longer can participate in the economy the way you need to you you can't you know you may pull your kids out of school so they don't get the education that that benefits them and ultimately benefits the world and so it, the uncertainty is the problem and also it's such a tool of dicta- dictatorships dictatorships it, you're always afoul of the law. That's the thing about dictatorships is that everyone is constantly in a state where they have violated the law and thus are vulnerable to whatever predation the government wants to chooses to to impose on them at this moment. And what we've done, what Trump is essentially doing is saying every person who is in this country illegally, you now don't know what your status is. You don't know what your position is and you are vulnerable at any minute. That's a really really crummy way to have to live. And yet, and yet they they are not wrong that, you know, the country has laws about immigration. They're not doing anything illegal. They're doing everything they're doing is seems legal as hell to me. I think you can, I think you can make just wrong. I think you can embrace the, if they're here illegally, you know, so they should be, uh, you know, uncomfortable. They've broken the law. But then the, the argument you can make just purely on utilitarian grounds is that, that you run into issues when you create this, what you described, which is this intense sense of fear and worry, which uh, which I think you can, based on some of the things that Stephen Miller has said, it seems pretty clear that the White House at some level, and there may be debates about this inside the White House, but the whole idea of self-deportation relies on yes. a certain amount of fright and scare and, and worry, if for no other reason than it makes it more efficient, because people will leave the country on their own if they're scared enough. But... There's a lot of, of of energy in the system that creates, which both set, which which both turns America into something different than it was, and for these communities, even if you're here legally, that sends a message to you which can be easily misinterpreted, right. and so that starts to work against your. Your goal, if your goal is just to get rid of people who are here, uh, it's also a illegally. huge waste of resources because right. you end up spending money to do things which and, you know build build new prisons and, and hire. Police officers and that's the problem with the hiring thing is you have to hire people so fast that it leads to abuses because there's no way to train appropriately people to deal with all of the, this massive crackdown. And so if you don't train them, this is what happened under George W. Bush. You get all kinds of bribery problems and corruption problems. And so now you've got a system that is that's ugly and messy, which is, I think, probably what led to the thinking about the National Guard, because the National Guard has been used in Texas. And so somebody might have thought, well, look, we can't train this many agents this fast and have them be good. So let's use an existing let's use an existing force. Right. I mean, the practical problem you have if you really want to, to to get millions of people to leave the country is how to ramp up ICE fast enough. That's why the fear is essential to this agenda. I mean, the whole thing is running on fear. People have to be induced to leave the country on their own in order for any kind of mass exodus to happen. And the administration knows that and is trying to use that. And there is something to me deeply troubling about that. Um, I mean, you're right, of course, that we have these laws on the books. It's also true that no president um, since Congress passed them, the ones we have now in 96, has used these powers in the way Trump is kind of threatening to. And so it's hard to quite know how to think about that. But there's also just something so not pragmatic about this entire situation. 
illegal immigration is on the decline in the United States. Um, we rely on seven to eight million people to work without documentation. And it, there's going to be a shrinking of the economy in addition to all the wasted resources that's going to come from this. When you look at the attitudes of Americans towards illegal immigration, you know, concerns about it are actually on the decline. It's just this very weird moment where we could have this huge upheaval that hurts so many people's lives. And and what exactly is the point of this, except that we don't have open borders. And so like now we're proving that. But I, I that that's a faster way, a better way of saying what I was trying to say, which is the, the pra- if you take it from a purely pragmatic angle, that rushing this um, and making a big show of it has cost. There will just be lots of collateral damage and bad images and um, Things and that rage will, and pain. And rage and pain and things that will be an adverti- not a great advertisement for the United States of America, it, just in the way it comes across. And that that will end up potentially undermining the goal. And it also requires just like thousands of smart, wise decisions. And when you're in a rush, that's awful hard to do. Emily, isn't one of the fundamental problems here, though, that the Democrats actually don't really have a better answer about this, that they don't that they don't really have an explanation that makes sense, say, to African-Americans who are more skeptical of immigration, where the globalists perspective, which I embody and represent and highly endorse that immigration in essentially all forms is good for everybody and good for the country is not widely shared and is not and is not a winning political case and also that the policy that we have is sort of a mishmash where we have this country quotas and then we have these people sort of who are neighboring countries and neighboring latin american countries who are coming in very large numbers and then there's sort of there's not that much of a preference for high skilled and and super desirable immigrants and so that that there's not a lot of coherence and that the democrats themselves don't have a coherent policy that is a a winning political strategy even though you know, it's I mean, I guess that's true because Hillary Clinton just lost the election. But I actually feel like there's a lot that's misleading about this. So first of all, African-Americans are not leading the charge to deport millions of people. Like, I know that they get used in this debate a lot, but that is not what um, the groups that represent them say. It's not to say that they're entirely unaffected by immigration, but like this is not what African-American groups are calling for. And another important part of this is that we had Congress had bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform passing the Senate in 2013. There was a plan and it wasn't something that would have, you know, granted citizenship or anything like it to the 11 million people who are here undocumented. But there was a path to citizenship in it for some of them. And then, you know, President Obama's actions for the dreamers and the relatives of the dreamers was an attempt to do that through the presidency, which the courts didn't accept. But it wasn't like there was widespread political opposition to that. So I I feel like, yes, it is true that if you take, you know, the 1996 immigration law and the country by country quotas that are on the books and you focus on them, it does not look like the Democrats or anyone has, like, solved this problem. But I think, in fact... In its mishmash, sometimes not buttoned up way, the country was kind of at a detente with this, especially in the last couple of years when essentially we were mostly deporting people either at the border or who had committed serious crimes. And that seemed to be working fine. And now we're doing something 
that is very different from that. And it's and the, and I was going to say it's not clear why, except it is clear we elected Donald you know, Trump. As it's, you know, it's interesting, actually, because Trump's this is a weird case where you're, you're absolutely right. Emily. that's a very keen point that is basically working. But deporting a lot of illegal immigrants is not actually going to help the people that Donald Trump purports to want to help. I mean, yeah, I think he he would claim it those is people. It's not that that we have a whole series of illegal immigrants who are stealing jobs from that poor white people are clamoring to have. That actually isn't happening. If you look, it's you know, there's a, there there are. It's not there are no examples of it, but it's basically not happening. That's not where immigrants are. That's not the jobs that they're taking. Can I break in here just a little like labor economist news bulletin? So you know, most of the research shows that having a lot of undocumented workers takes a small bite out of the wages of people who didn't graduate from high school and improves the standard of living for everybody else. Just back to David's point, your question about uh, politics. Um, the CBS had a poll that came out this week that is uh, that shows you the, that this is one of those issues where Donald Trump and his base and the Republican base um, – First of all, everybody thinks it's an country thinks it's the most important issue. God, Republic, it's not. But wait, but it's wait. not. It's all right. Country's re- wrong. You're wrong. Country. Listen, <laughs> that's always productive Repu- to do to the, scold the country. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, well. but the get but over the, here, country. The signals in the polling are all over the place. So so the the country still wants a path to citizenship. Most Americans continue to to support a path to citizenship for illegal immigrants. So that's counter Trump. And also, there's not a lot of uh, support for building the wall either. But among Republican ranks, 78 percent of Republicans uh, favor the president's handling of the immigration issue. So it's an issue where it matters a lot to the president, his base and the and the Republican base. So that's just the way the, the numbers look. You know, one thing that strikes me in talking to people about immigration, and I I find it very confounding. So sometimes I'll have a conversation with someone who will say, I just feel like we have to take care of the people, the Americans, the people who are here. And there are all these people coming in and they're taking stuff and they shouldn't be and it's making our lives worse. And that is just not true. Like there's so much evidence that suggests that immigrants make the economy more productive, that they put in more than they take as a whole. But I've never found a way of being persuasive about that. I feel like every conversation I've had where I've tried to like gently or firmly say, well, actually the evidence, it just doesn't penetrate that notion that there are people who are coming here and are taking things from the more deserving native born. It's, it, it seems to be you know, like deeply embedded, and I, I, I find it so upsetting, and I just don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And when you say immigrants, you mean undocumented. I mean undocumented. Honestly, I don't think that yeah. people really distinguish. The other week, I was talking to someone. Well, that's a big problem, though. Yes. That they don't. Distinguish. No, a hundred percent. I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago who talked about. She was like, "Well, maybe Trump's going too far, but I don't like the idea of illegal refugees." So there is no such thing as an illegal refugee. Like it just. That it just made me so sad, but I also felt like starting to lecture her about that was not going to accomplish anything. I just like literally didn't know what to do. No, I mean this is my wife is an immigrant, and and I would argue has contributed more to to America's success than she's taken away from it. Um, but her mother, who I've talked about on the show before, is a you know a Trump supporter, and her mother, who is an immigrant, 
and her mother holds these views about immigrants. And I, I every time I talk to her, I'm like, wait, but you're an immigrant. But you, there's but there's it's the pro. So, it's, it's but so, isn't the pro immigrant? But isn't that that seems to me to be perfectly reasonable? Which is, I did the I played by the rules. I did the things you're supposed to do. Immigration is is great for the country. I'm proof of it. But I don't want people to be. I want people to follow the rules and not but, but like, she, break the rules. I to think get this in. isn't. I don't even think she's talking about illegal. She's talking about immigration, period. Oh, well, that's but that's a different matter. I mean, I think. But I think that I think these are together because actually the whole Muslim thing, all the Muslim stuff is never about illegal immigrants. It's it's about Muslim. Well, that's a different. Right. But that's a different kettle of fish. What I'm talking about is, is if it's we're a, talking it's like about, a neighboring kettle of fish. Well, OK. It's the but, same kettle of fish and it's a different <laughs> pod of fish swimming around it. It seems to me to be totally logical for people to say, hey, you know, there are people waiting in line, playing by the rules, doing the right yeah. thing to come into America. Why are you cheating them by giving the lawbreakers yeah. a, a break here? Yeah. The the, the one I'm going to I'm going to take the last word here. The one thing, one place where I think this is uh, could go awry. I, I think they're politically. This is probably totally solid for Trump. And as John said, the the base is behind it um, is that if there is too if there are too many incidents of raids on churches you know uh the, that woman who was who was seeking a protective order against her abusive boyfriend who gets who gets deported because the boyfriend narcs her out if there are too many incidents of heavy-handed government like bullying of people who are basically trying to do the right thing or moving in their lives innocently i think that's where this could go awry but otherwise i think it's probably you know we're just going to build a bunch of stupid detention centers and put people in them. I disagree. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I think that, um, first of all, if this really gets going, employers are going to start complaining loudly because they rely on this labor. And in states like Alabama and Arizona that did a version of this a few years ago, you know, there were like tomato farmers in Alabama with crops rotting in their fields asking the state legislators to come and pick those tomatoes. And there were also implications for churches because the law was so broad in Alabama that if you were like giving a ride to someone to church, you could be accused of harboring an immigrant. And actually, like, that was another little fine print part of this order, some idea of upping the prosecutions or you know, implications for people who harbor immigrants in a really broad way. Now, I'm not saying that's about to start happening across the country because I think because of the political consequences, but those possibilities are out there in a new way. And there is just something that's going to be deeply disquieting about watching this happen if it really happens on a mass scale. And I, I mean, the Republican base may stick with Trump, but there are a lot of people who are not in that base. Right. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. 
Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. News came on Wednesday that the Trump administration is going to revoke the protections that the Obama administration afforded to trans kids in public schools, in particular use of bathroom, the bathroom of their choice, a change that was pushed through by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, apparently over the not terribly effective objections of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos to the much glee and satisfaction of certain uh, social conservatives who who have been alarmed by what they perceive to be the I don't know some some threat to bathrooms caused by by this uh, this measure. Emily, what is the practical effect of what they've done? What what legally have, did they do? Well, weirdly, there's sort of no practical effect because a federal judge had already stayed the guidance letter that the Obama administration had put out that granted access to transgender students to use the bathrooms they choose to use in school. However, there is a lot of legal consequence because there's litigation going on that depends on this guidance letter. So to back up for a second, last year, I think it was last year, the Obama administration issued a guidance letter saying schools have to give transgender students some access to bathrooms that they feel comfortable using. And the reason for that is the provision against sex discrimination in Title IX. So this was, I would argue, a new interpretation of Title IX. But this letter was put out without going through the notice and comment part of the rulemaking process, which may have been fine or might have been like a kind of grabbing of executive authority or at least like a thing that then makes people feel like suddenly this idea they hadn't necessarily thought of a whole lot was being foisted on the country without a lot of legal process. And so there was some backlash to this letter. There were schools where, you know, some parents and students or school officials felt uncomfortable. Then meanwhile, there are court cases going on. And the one that's gotten the furthest along is a boy named Gavin Grimm in, I think, Virginia. His case is in the Fourth Circuit. And he won. He won access to using the boy's bathroom over his school's objection. And one of the main reasons he won was that the court referred back to this letter about Title IX that the Obama Civil Rights Division and Office of um, and Department of Education had issued. So now that letter has been withdrawn and that court case, which the Supreme Court is supposed to hear at the end of March is kind of up in the air. The court could send it back or keep it. We don't really know what's going to happen. So as usual, we see different tracks for um, these kinds of legal changes. In this case, there was an executive branch track and a judicial track, and they affect each other. So we're going to see how this is going to play out next. And, you know, I think the sort of larger question here is, how um, deep this backlash really goes. I mean, this idea that there is something dangerous about letting trans kids use what bathroom they want. There's like negative evidence for that. Well, the uh, the danger, the danger is to the trans. Well, kids. right. That's where the danger is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the danger is to trans kids being bullied and beaten and, and abused. Yes, that's that is a totally good point uh, to nobody yes. else. I meant the fear mongering is uh, baseless. You're right. Trans people have been worrying about and fighting for using the bathroom for many years, but it 
kind of as a national conversation happened pretty quickly. And, you know, it doesn't look to me like uh, the Trump administration is anything like on the right side of history here. But we're going to see some tug of war over exactly what the pace of progress is. So when if if the president did something without you without going through notice and comment the way President Obama did, there would be people would be freaking out. Right. So when when conservatives or Republicans say like this was foisted on us without going through the normal process, they have a case with with Obama. Well, they also they did freak out when Obama did. Yeah, things no, like this. no, I guess my but my point is that, you know, if as Emily quite rightly points out, this is social change of which for which a huge portion of the country is uncomfortable if for no other reason they don't understand it, it takes more than – and so when they hear it goes through in a kind of a fast way or in a kind of sideways way, it makes them suspicious it, just as much on the other side as it now makes people suspicious about the president. Yeah, this was one of the bigger things that the Obama administration did without notice or comment with this particular kind of let, rulemaking. Let me ask you about the Title IX letter. It Was the court – did the court use the letter in – just the fact it it existed or use the reasoning inside the, the letter? The reasoning inside uh, the letter. I believe that the Fourth Circuit decided the case on Title IX grounds, the idea of deferring to this um, Justice Department Obama administration interpretation of its own regulation. And there was an equal protection claim there, but I don't think that it was part of the Fourth Circuit's rationale. So that if you remove the rationale... You kick the legs out from under the ruling. Right. And that would be a reason for the Supreme Court to send it back, because otherwise the Supreme Court is going to be essentially looking at this case in this particular posture for the, the in a kind of new way that the lower courts didn't really consider, or at least the Fourth Circuit didn't seem to have considered. And if it had gone to the administration, if it had gone to the Supreme Court under the previous arrangement, would you have had a decision where the Supreme Court showing deference for the rulemaking powers of the executive would have potentially... Uh, allowed it to stay in place. Indeed. There would have been a lot of talk of Chevron deference. The old Chevron deference. (laughs) Which is much better, I think, than the the Sheets deference or the Exxon deference. Remember that our new friend... uh, Gorsuch is not a fan of Chevron deference. You know, we're just talking a little Supreme Court over here, David. Do you guys think, and maybe there's a question more for you, John, do you think this is an issue that has political legs for... I I think you raise a really good caution... John, about the how rapid this change is and how radical it, it seems to a lot of people, and I and I I withdraw my kind of cavalier comments I may have made about this in the past. I think that's a that's a very useful comment. It does seem different and unsettling to people, and, and we have to acknowledge that. Even though it clearly the right answer is that is to look out for the benefit of these trans kids who are who are mostly suffering. But do you think that the political gain lies with the LBGTQ side of this where there's going to be so much unhappiness and dis- disconsolateness over this and it will feel just so vindictive uh, or with social conservatives who are glad that somebody's finally standing up or do you think it's a you know it's a it's a pick them I don't know um, I guess I would uh, say a couple of things to try to figure out the politics of this one Emily uh, when I'm done rambling, you can explain to me why the rush, like, why is this, why is this coming out now? I know there are court cases and you can just remind me again, you may have already even explained it, but I think that matters too, because it's sometimes like, did they pick this fight or did they just have to make a ruling? And that, it's the court cases, I think the court cases were bubbling mm. up. And so the federal government felt some pressure to take a position. And, and these were real kids who were saying like, I need help here. Right. Okay. So it wasn't, um, 
because it's it's different, I think, in measurement, whether we measure things that an administration does because the, the timing is ripe and those fights they pick when there's no real reason to pick Yeah, I don't think so you can case, accuse the them of picking right. a fight. They were responding right. to a call from p- kids or, and, and in some cases schools around the country. Right. Okay, cool. So then the other thing, though, is when you think about President Trump when he was a candidate, he at for a, like a 24-hour period, it felt like, or maybe even longer, he was making a claim that he would be a better president for the LGBTQ community than Hillary Clinton. The T in, in that uh, series of letters is there. And so obviously that didn't turn out to be the case because obviously Hillary Clinton would have would have carried this out in the, the way that the Obama administration would have carried it out. I think there's so much going on right now. I think this maybe uh, bounces around. I think the one of the arguments about the 2016 election was that um, and this may be too pat, but that Donald Trump was talking about people's jobs and their livelihoods and their and kind of the basic bread and butter of a larger share of America. And Democrats were worried about bathrooms. Now, the immediate re- retort is that, you know, this was something that was forced into the conversation by conservative activists in some cases. So it but it doesn't matter. That's the political that's at the end the way people were processing this. So I don't know how that plays out now. But I hear that a lot when I talk to conservatives and supporters of Donald Trump. I guess my point is, uh, to the extent that it comes up again, it's another argument for those who support the president and those who want to rally. I think this is another rallying spot for lots of Republicans where they can say, I agree with Donald Trump on this. And Donald Trump looks – would like more of those than fewer. You know, obviously he wants more cohesion than not. Um, it looks though like marriage equality, I don't know, 10, 8 years ago where you have this states' rights argument about federalism. States should get, be able to get – to make their own policies. And then you have this like surging – change in what appears to be a basic civil right and justice. Like there's the short term gain for Republicans and then there's the larger way in which they're losing the culture wars. I don't think this is quite at the scale of it's not of the scale, equality, but it's it has that same valence of like eventually the country. This is just not right. Like we're really we're going to ban kids from using the bathroom into perpetuity because why? I mean, that's just I don't know. I, I understand that it's going to take some time for people to some people to get their minds around this. But I the notion that it's like we're really going to go back and stay with, um, you know, forcing trans kids to use bathrooms that they're uncomfortable with does not make sense. Right. No, but, but I, I guess I'm saying, no, we won't. Obviously there, there's a, there's a clear right answer and, and the world will come to it, but I just don't think it's, it is not, this is not as big or as an emotionally potent an issue as marriage equality is. Marriage equality is a real, it's a real. Well, I mean, I think this affects a smaller number of people because there are fewer trans people than gay people. But I actually think like it, it does have a lot of emotional look. I mean, people wouldn't care about it on either side if it wasn't deeply emotional. Like if it affects your daily life in school or elsewhere, it's a big deal. And obviously there are some people for whom it's deeply threatening. All right. Last question on this. Is Betsy DeVos, who apparently stood up and, and tried to feebly object to this, but refused to fall on her sword to object to it. According to reporting, the new secretary of education had made the case, I think, or had referred to 
studies that have about suicide um, right. resulting from right. when yes. you guys were talking about bullying, yeah. the psychological message that this sends and the and the relationship between that and um, and rates of suicide. Does she deserve praise for for at least making a stand about this, an internal stand or or not? I was surprised that this is something that she um, tried to oppose Jeff Sessions about. I'm not sure that... I, let's see what happens next. <laughs> what do you think? I thought it was interesting. I think I think it, it, would, it would be awfully bold to surrender your job on day six of your job. It's slightly unreasonable to say she should have quit over it. And I think, you know, fighting internally over it. Is, it reflects well in her. It reflects that she understands the gravity of the issue and, and why it's important. And so I begin by giving her the benefit of the doubt and hope to see what else she does. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slate colleague Will Salatan had a great phrase uh, that he coined many, many years ago called PC, which is PC gridlock, which refers to the moment when two liberal bow ideals run into conflict with each other and people can't decide uh, which one which one should trump. We've had the sort of photo negative equivalent of that this week with the sudden implosion of Milo Yiannopoulos, the gay alt-right provocateur. He is a an Abby Hoffman of the right. He has made a specialty of, of provoking the left, primarily the campus left, into vigorous and, and overwrought responses to his his grotesque comments about women, trans people, Jews, pretty much anybody else uh, you can think of. He had been invited to keynote the CPAC conference and then was rapidly disinvited when a tape surfaced of him basically defending pedophilia and talking about his own experiences indirectly as uh, a victim of abuse, which he didn't portray himself as a victim of abuse. He portrayed himself differently. But um, he lost his book deal. He was ousted by Breitbart, where he was an editor. This lion of free speech, this person held up as being the champion of free speech, was ousted from the society of the right the minute he said anything that was offensive to conservatives. So... Why? I I have been puzzling over this one, Emily. I have read a lot and I just, I don't have anything. I'm just really confused by what it. What are you confused by? What's your muddle? I, I'm, I'm very confused by uh, what, what just happened. I mean, is it just that we, he found the one issue where you can't be a provocateur and, and therefore he has to be banished from conservative society? Was he, did conservatives not really ever want him? I mean, he's not really conservative. He's just a... He's an asshole. That's what he is. And he was an asshole who provoked the left. People liked him because he provoked the left, not because he was particularly conservative. I, I don't well, know. He I would was like right to wing talking. in some of his views. I mean, he was running down everybody, right, in this, like, very angry way. I, I guess what I think about him, first of all, I realized when I was preparing for this segment that I basically tried to just ignore him and had kind of no idea what he'd actually yeah. ever said. Right? Like, he's, don't you think, John, he's just someone who, like, it would be better if we, he was just... I do wonder why we're not just letting this come and go, especially in a time of such uh, 
pressing other issues. Right. So, do you want to in the middle of this topic? We can, <laughs> should should we switch God. topics? No, I think we should. No, I mean, I think. Sorry, go ahead, John. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Emily. Well, Fire I guess. In there. I, I, so my feeling about. It's Milo, right? I don't even know how to pronounce yeah. the name. My biggest, uh, not my biggest, but I really like the name Milo. And so I would really like him to go away for that reason. I mean, he just seems like someone who should have been ignored all along. Like he wasn't worth protesting. He wasn't worth thinking about. There's not really anything of substance here. It's like prov provocation for provocation's sake. And he managed to whip up the left. In particular, he kind of embarrassed Berkeley, although the protests there were not, as far as I can tell, you know, anything the university condoned and, and something the university tried hard to stop. However, conservatives had a really good time remonstrating against the left for not embracing Milo's free speech. And then, of course, the kind of obvious point to make about hypocrisy was that when it it turned out he had said something. His speech offended conservatives. They didn't want him at CPAC anymore, which I guess the only thing this really goes to show to me is that the whole idea of political correctness is meaningless. Like, Speech yeah. is politically correct if it doesn't really offend you. And so you want to tar someone else as being intolerant. And then it's something else like deeply offensive or wrong once it gets under your skin. It's just like there's no there's. Yeah, that's it. That's very well said. But the, it's also it's not it is not. The problem is that it's not that there's nothing to this idea that campuses are sheltered and incredibly insular and intolerant of alternative opinions. What it is is that each every institution develops its own its own fixed ideology and the sort of things which is are acceptable to say and things that's unacceptable to say. And and campuses in particular are becoming very politically left and so any right speech is anathemized pretty quickly. And then there are institutions on the right that are becoming extremely right wing and any left speech is anathemized. It's not that those bubbles aren't real. I mean, that it, it, there is a genuine problem that's happening. Yeah. You know what the problem about your, if I can interrupt yep. Emily, um, what's problematic about both the descriptions you, um, both the groups you described, and we see this a little bit in CPAC, which is meeting in Washington, is that the, um, the cohering around a position is based entirely on rooting interest and not ideology. Uh, and that that means so, in other words, CPAC this year, which Donald Trump wasn't even uh, or d didn't decide he decided not to go to last year and for which he was denounced by the head of the Tea Party Patriots as not being a Tea Party Patriot. And he was derided for not being a conservative now owns CPAC. This is the CPAC show is the Donald Trump show. And so what is that based around? Is that based around his deep new findings of Burkean philosophy uh, and that he uh, has replaced William F. Buckley as the, our, the greatest conservative thinker of our time? No, it's a total rallying around the, the guy who's at the top of the, of the heap at the moment. And so to the extent that things are all rooting interests and like who's wearing your sports shirt, not yeah. what's underneath it, yeah. that seems to me to be destabilizing too on both yeah. uh, the left and the right. Because there's an argument on the left for free speech, which at Berkeley they did not allow. Uh, you know, And so the overreactions on the left are the same thing. It's like, he's not on my team, therefore we will. Now, this Milo person is not a great example well, because he's like <laughs> repugnant. And, 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 but, um, well, but, but, but universities are constantly disinviting, uh, what's her name? Um, the really smart uh, Muslim 
academic Muslim oh, thinker right. who who's critical. Ayn Hirsi Ali. Ayn Hirsi Ali. Yeah, they, they, she's constant. And I always, when, I, mean, I think really that Constantly? just always seemed to me. Well, it's happened. It's okay. happened. I think she was disinvited from Brandeis, for example. I mean, look that up. But I'm pretty sure that she was disinvited from Brandeis, and just seems so stupid. Like she's right. a really smart person. Right. Yeah, and also I guess the thing that I like about uh, the the uh, I'm going to go on a tangent. Come on, everybody, come along with me. Um, you know these town halls, like uh, I, the members of Congress yeah, who actually are brave honor, enough. They to canceled an honorary degree. Brandeis canceled and revoked an honorary degree. You know, uh, as a friend of the show says, beliefs are only useful if you run things through them. And so when you shut down debate. You know, which is also what happens to the members of Congress who aren't brave enough to go to the town halls and why the ones who are brave enough, even when they get shouted at and and don't have great answers, shouldn't be lampooned the way they are, because I think then you just encourage them not to have town halls at all, because better to take the hit for not having a town hall than to have your clip selectively edited and sent all over social media of how you didn't have an answer. That's a tricky one, though, because the town hall— If you don't allow the conversation— Then, then you're not. Then the beliefs don't get an airing, and don't you know nothing feels adjudicated if they don't have the if they don't happen. Right. I mean, I guess so. First of all, I feel like disinviting or canceling is always the bad call. Like once someone is invited, better to just like have them come and roll your eyes. I don't. I. I. It, or stand outside with the sign. And but I guess Don, what I take from your point is that you want speech to be the curative for repugnant speech or just you know, views that that the people protesting don't like, but then that the views of the protesters not to need to not so overwhelm the the other views or speech that they become right. Like this sort of the heckler problem. But John, yeah, well, I mean, I totally mangled a bunch of things put in there. Actually, I don't necessarily mind the heckler because the heckler is it. It's a fair fight, which is to say you can heckle and make an ass of yourself. Like it's not always certain that a heckler wins the day. Because especially a heckler who is pierced by a politician who knows his stuff, uh, makes the case and can explain it in, in public. Since I'm a huge advocate for better explaining from all sides, where all where debates are based on ideas and not just on rooting interest, I want to keep alive the possibility that a heckler can totally get taken but, down by a person who knows what so they're what doing. So what are you objecting I'm, to? Like overwhelming? What I'm objecting to. No, what I'm objecting to is so Tom Cotton had a town hall where he was faced. First of all, he should get some number of points for having the town hall. Lots of his colleagues are not having the town halls. He he. Mm, so one, he stands up point. there and gets you know gets a to, you know just reamed out by this woman who has a who tells a compelling story about how she pays twenty nine dollars a month for health care and her husband has congenital heart failure and she does the whole thing that. Just the, the the berating of Tom Cotton gets passed around on social media, not his answer, whatever his answer was. And so that's not really fair. It makes Cotton look bad. Everybody has a good time making Tom Cotton look bad. But that's Wait, I, I think if you've well, already won, well, the, if you've already well. won the p- argument or if you're going to if you're going to have a sus- argument that sustains, it doesn't just make you feel good. I feel like you want to allow a place for the guy to respond but to the John, thing. I don't think that Tom Cotton's is problem is that he has a shortage of places to respond without a rebuttal to the world. The man but is a U.S. Not, that, senator. That wasn't I mean, my so, argument. My so, argument is that if you get, um, you know, tens of thousands, I guess, by now, people looking at this uh, and taking glory in the fact that he was, you know, punched in the nose, I think it, it creates a condition where everybody thinks like, OK, well, now we've got to go get our clip where we make somebody look like an idiot. And so the goal is not 
we won this argument, right. but we made this person look like an idiot. Yeah, no, that's true. But it, but I will say that like it's rare that 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 the other side doesn't also seek its moments to. Sure. To, well, that's to, my point. Is it's it, escalation, and then everybody is like, "What?" Well, I'm interested, John, because you're a person who who greatly believes in in sort of in manners, who believes in dignity and calmness, and sort of treating people respectfully. How? Do we grapple with somebody who is as rude and disgusting as so you can say that Milo Yiannopoulos is, you know, he's a, he's an avatar of free speech and, you know, you've invited him, you let him come speak. But he he, in fact, does not speak by rules that are normally accepted in polite society. He says disgusting things in rude ways about people in offensive ways. If he was at your house for a party and he was saying these things, you would you would want him out of your house. Right. It is it is. He doesn't engage in in anything that is like a Socratic dialogue or even a you know a Lincoln Douglas debate. Yeah. It's pure vitriol and nastiness. So, how, what's the space we need to open up? Does it? Do we have to open up the space so wide no. that that gets in? Or? I don't think so. I think you make the judgment, which is that um, you know if he's speaking to some truth, not a truth, but a thing that needs to be argued, and he's making it, he's operating in a place where uh, a good debate will maybe illuminate something. Then you are willing to tolerate the misbehavior because the misbehavior is not just like oh no he's you know saying bad things but it's an impediment to understanding i mean that's the thing when when somebody's so self-involved and involved in so many acts that are clearly about keeping the spotlight on themselves then they're not illuminating anything except themselves so you have to make everybody has to make that balance about whether something's actually being illuminated here and also by the way it's opening up the conditions for uh, for a debate, you know, watch James Baldwin uh, debate William F. Buckley at um, Cambridge, or maybe it was Oxford. This is a v- pretty tough debate between the two of them, but they're all they're following the rules. It's not like anything is being sublimated in the in the course of their debate, which you can find on YouTube. But because there are some rules, everybody feels like they're at least getting a fair chance to make their argument. And it seems to me that that may not work in the real world, but in a university or setting like that where people do believe in those kind of rules, then uh, then you can create structures to bring out understanding and not just uh, self-involved, you know, look at me-ism. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are not talking about Milo Yiannopoulos with your loved ones, Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? I was really interested in a court ruling by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals this week in a case with the wonderful name Walsh Lager versus Florida. It was a challenge that a whole bunch of doctors in Florida brought to a state law that prohibited them from bringing up guns and gun safety with their patients. And the 11th Circuit said by a vote of 10 to 1 that this infringed on doctors' First Amendment rights, which is interesting. I'm always interested in these cases that are about like the professional conduct and and standards, in particular medical advice, is a fascinating category of speech because it's not really just speech. And states do regulate it in some ways, but then there are these constitutional free speech concerns too. So it's a great example of that debate. But then I think there's also just this really interesting social question, essentially about science underlying this, which is that, so this seems like kind of, at least when I first heard about this law, I was like, huh, why would Florida pass that law? The reason was that a few people testified before the state legislature that they own guns and their doctors asked and in a way that made them feel disapproved of as if these guns were potentially a safety risk, which of course 
They can be, depending on how guns are kept in the home. They're not always a safety risk, but they can be. The objections, not, not surprisingly, came from the National Rifle Association, which lobbied for the law's passage, and who were essentially feeling like doctors were making a political point in bringing up guns. And then the doctors came back with, you know, lots of friend of the court briefs from social scientists saying like, no, wait, there's a reason we're asking about this question. And these tensions, we're just seeing a lot of them arise right now. I mean, they're always with us, but I thought that this was an interesting example um, of a kind of clash between people's sense of their own privacy and ability to govern their own homes and then doctors have this public health concern is florida going to appeal it to the supreme court i kind of probably not they'll lose they'd lose yeah i don't think they i mean this supreme court is so robust about the first amendment i'd be really surprised and 10 to 1 they lost 10 to 1 did i say that already yeah yeah jd what is your chatter uh my chatter is based on a a piece in the washington post that ran um on I think it ran on President's Day. Um, it's, about, it's about George Washington. And I was thinking in the context of the whistle stop uh, episode that I did this week about Truman taking over the steel companies, like when a president gets to complain about rough treatment, especially since we have a, a system that is designed with conflicting powers in the three branches of government in which it's necessary if you're doing something that's experimentational and risk-taking, you're going to run into rough treatment. That's the way it's designed. And so whether you have a right to complain about that. And in that context, George Washington, um, there the piece in the Post is about all of the incredible illnesses and sicknesses that he encountered. He had smallpox, bouts of malaria, multiple infections and abscesses, tuberculosis, dysentery. And in the first six months of his presidency, he had a boil the size of two fists, which was accompanied by a fever. When he fought at one point- Where was it? I don't know. I didn't (laughs) say. He didn't say. Is that really a boil if it's that big? Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's a- it's That's a like basket a boy. That's what it is. <laughs> oh my to those listeners who got that, I appreciate it. Um, anyway, the um, but there there is a fun little or fun. Anyway, one interesting little historical tidbit though is that he got smallpox when he was nineteen and survived it, which then meant when he was in the Revolutionary War, when smallpox shot through the Revolutionary Army because he'd already had it. He was immune and therefore didn't, you know, get it like uh, so many of his uh, those who were fighting in Washington's army did. So his constitution in that specific case may have been a crucial and important part of history. But he was once laid low so bad by intestinal stomach troubles and the attendant um, effluence there produced that he had to be conveyed during battle in a wagon lying down. Anyway, uh, one, one tough president. Wow. My chatter today, actually two chatters, because there's. I just read a book which I thought was so lovely. I need to share it. So it's a book called A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did you read that? Mm, yeah. Well, I've never it read it. A, I'm putting it on my it's list. A very re- it's, such a, it's a, it's a delicate. Well, sorry. Go ahead. It's a very restorative, quiet book. It's about a World War One veteran, a British World War One veteran who uh, shortly after the war, you know, he's shell-shocked and, you know, had terrible experience. He goes to a uh, country church and he's been hired by a a parish in the north of England to go to this country church and restore, uncover a medieval painting, a medieval mural that was painted on the church wall and has been covered over for 400 years. And it's about 
him restoring this painting and being in the country and about this sort of sort of slightly stupid parson he's dealing with and the parson's beautiful parson's wife and the people in town and his own recovery it is a just a it's a very short book i read it in an afternoon it's very quiet it's very strange and just beautiful and soothing if you're looking for like a very 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 soothing book to spend an afternoon with it's i I recommend it it's yeah it's i mean he's restoring the painting and restoring himself it reminds me very much of the of hemingway's uh, big two-hearted river where you know restoration of a soldier through fishing and and the like daily just making dinner for yourself yeah it's great yeah it's one of Anne's favorite books Uh, that's so interesting my mother gave it to me for her birthday thank you ma my my other chatter, sorry, is also related to my parents, which is that I just rediscovered last month, or my parents just rediscovered in their house, a 1992 list they made of boring conversational topics. It's an incredible list, which I'll send around, but it begins cholesterol, HDL levels, weight loss, word processing programs, recycling, new age music, television programs, especially Twin Peaks, the merits of different airlines and frequent flyer programs, the price of anything. Amendments to the English Department bylaws. <laughs> Reviews of unread books or unseen movies. Process. Directions for getting from A to B. Places you missed when you went there. Cellular phones in general, car phones in particular. How much better their earlier album was. <laughs> <laughs> People you just missed meeting at college. How late I stayed up. Anyway, it's a really great list. So here's, may I say two things? Mm. One, which is it would be an amusing. (laughs) (laughs) My mother put that. Uh It would be amusing to get three great conversationalists Mm. together and have them force them to talk about one of those things and see if they could have an interesting conversation. Secondly, Mm. it seems like the common theme in all of those is that they are things about, you could add new Mm. golf clubs or my new grill. They are things about which bores tend to go on at some length. So what do your parents do when one of these- Amateur discussions of linguistics. (laughs) Do your parents cut off conversations on these topics? No, they never never did anything. And in fact, they- huge percentage of conversations in my parents' of house course. involve this. But <laughs> symptoms. But they note. They note a small <laughs> objection. A sigh. Symptoms. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Symptoms. There's one I don't understand, which I'm sure I should understand. Loss carryover. What was that? It's a tax thing yeah. for when you s- – or a business thing. I'm going to put property taxes when you, and traffic on that John, list. Johnny Carson yeah. farewell anecdote. No, I think <laughs> – <laughs> I think loss carryover was loss carryover what allowed Donald Trump to get it basically allows you to if you if you don't take the full advantage of a loss in a calendar in a one tax year, you can take it over to the next year. Right. Wasn't that how we part of how that huge amount of. I think so. Taxes he didn't pay. That's how we understood that, right? That like gazillion dollars. My parents, that wasn't boring. They should have been studying it. Oh my God! Anyway, I'll I'll, I'll send out. I, I tweeted it a while ago, but I'll send around the list. It's pretty funny. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producers, Jocelyn Frank, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of podcasts is at panoply.fm. Show page is slate.com/gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com/gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes. We would appreciate it. 
For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see you in L.A. next week. Please uh, go over and get yourself a ticket if you can. Slate.com slash live for our show on March 1st. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.